Would you pray with me, please? Spirit of the living God, we know that you are here with us in this place. We know that you have come near to your people, that as we gather together and call on your name, that you have responded. And although there is never a moment and never a place where we are apart from you, that here in this moment and in this place, you are especially near, especially present. So, Lord, we ask that as we come into your word, that you would help us to hear your voice. Lord, we have a ton of resistance to your voice. We want to be right. We want to be strong. We want to be encouraged in what we're already doing. Lord, as we come to your word, help us to surrender to you. Help us to be open to what you might recreate in us that is new and fresh and alive. Lord, we want to give ourselves to you as an act of worship, not for what we will get out of it, but for the purpose of glorifying you, our creator. Lord, so we set aside all pretense, an agenda, and we simply come into your presence, knowing that you are here and knowing that you are speaking. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you open your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 1? Genesis 1, first book of the Bible, first chapter of the Bible, first verse of the Bible. Pastor Brad assured me that he would be able to locate that this morning, but uh, I'm confident we'll all arrive at that location. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was empty, a formless mass cloaked in darkness. And the Spirit of God was hovering over its surface. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that it was good, and then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. Together these made up one day. And God said, let there be space between the waters to separate water from water. And so it was. God made this space to separate the waters above from the waters below, and God called the space sky. And this happened on the second day. And God said, let the waters beneath the sky be gathered into one place so dry ground may appear. And so it was. And God named the dry ground land and the water seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land burst forth with every sort of grass and seed-bearing plants. And let there be trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. And the seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And so it was. The land was filled with seed-bearing plants and trees, and their seeds produced plants and trees of like kind. And God saw that it was good, and this all happened on the third day. And God said, let bright lights appear in the sky to separate day from night. They will be signs to mark off the seasons, the days, and the years. Let, the light, let their light shine down upon the earth. <coughs> and so it was. For God 
made two great lights, the sun and the moon, to shine down upon the earth. The greater one, the sun, presides during the day, and the lesser one, the moon, presides through the night. He also made the stars. God set the lights in the heavens to light the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and all of this happened on the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life, and let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created great sea creatures and every sort of fish and every kind of bird, and God saw that it was good. And then God blessed them, saying, Let the fish multiply and fill the oceans, and let the birds increase and fill the earth. And this all happened on the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth every kind of animal, livestock, small animals, and wildlife. And so it was. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, and small animals, each able to reproduce more of its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make people in our image to be like ourselves. They will be masters over all life, the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the livestock, the wild animals, and the small animals. And so God created people in his own image. God patterned them after himself, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and told them, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Be masters over the fish and birds and all of the animals. And God said, look, I have given you the seed-bearing plants throughout the earth and all of the fruit trees for your food. And I have given all of the grasses and other green plants to the animals and birds for their food. And so it was. Then God looked over all he had made and saw that it was excellent in every way. And this all happened on the sixth day. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, <coughs> having finished his task, God rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day which he rested from his work of creation. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. We'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. So I had a uh, conversation this past Wednesday night um, around our fast food time. By the way, if you're not coming to fast food, you're missing out on the best conversations. Had a conversation with a uh, young elementary-aged um, member of our congregation. And uh, this young fellow was uh, asking some questions about the, uh, uh, some friends of his that had gotten in trouble. And he said, so... Um, how many chances do you get somebody around here? <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I'll answer your question with a question. I said, how many chances does your mom give you? And uh, said, said, so she's still your mom, still in the family, still in the house, lots of chances, right? Yeah, lots of chances. And I said, another question for you. So how many chances do you think God gives you? His eyes got really big. And he says, one. And I said, one chance from God? I said, and then what happens after that one chance? And his eyes are still big. And he said, <laughs> See, good conversations on Wednesday night. 
So it raises a question, though, doesn't it? Where do we learn that we get one chance from God? Where do we learn what God is like? Where do we learn about the character of God, the nature of God, the person of God? Where do we get our questions answered when we wonder about who God is? It isn't just a challenge for elementary age kids. We all have questions about what God is like, who God is, what matters most to God. Another friend of mine was meeting with a group of pastors out west. And this friend of mine was uh, having a conversation and experienced in that conversation with this group of pastors some significant resistance to the idea that God's mission, that God's purpose in this world is a mission of reconciliation and restoration. And instead, many of this group of pastors thought that God's mission in this world was primarily a mission to forgive people from their sins. Two very different views of God. Two very different approaches to the question of what matters most to God. What is God like? What is God about? Whether you're an elementary school student or a pastor struggling with the mission of God, every single one of us has questions about what God is like. And so we've been doing this little series together uh, about theology. What is God like? Who is God? What is the nature of God? What is the character of God? And one of the things that we've been saying is that theology uh, doesn't itself have to be practical, right? Uh, It doesn't have to be pragmatic. Theology doesn't have to say, and therefore this is how I forgive somebody, and therefore this is how I become a good mother, and this is how I become a good employee, and this is how I get through life. Uh, This is how to pray. Theology doesn't have to have a pragmatic outcome at its very best, Theology brings us into an encounter with this living God. That's the application, that we meet with God, that we come to know something about what God is like, who God is in God's own person. And that's immensely relevant to how we live our life and who we are becoming and what matters most. And so far in this series, we've talked about the idea that God is a God beyond our language. What that means is that our language can't control God. Our words cannot manipulate God. God is so far beyond our language. He's beyond our metaphors. He's beyond our poetry. He's beyond our descriptions. He's so far beyond those things that any word that we use to describe God is automatically more wrong than it's right. God is beyond our language, and so anytime we do theology, anytime we say words about God, we have to say those words with a great deal of humility, a great deal of caution. All of our words about God are provisional. And then we spent some time thinking about the idea that God is indifferent. And talking about the indifference of God was really a way of trying to capture something about the grandeur and the glory and the majesty of God. That the grandeur and the glory and the majesty of God is so transcendent. It is so beyond anything that we have ever experienced that it almost seems to us that God in God's own self is indifferent 
to who we are. God is indifferent in the way that the glory and the majesty of a sunset is indifferent to whether or not you observe it. The glory and the majesty of the sunset is complete in and of itself, and God is complete in and of God's self. God doesn't need anything from any of us. God does not exist for us, for our whims, for our needs. God is not our magic friend who helps us out from time to time. God isn't our buddy. God is God. Today we want to press on just a little bit into this mini-series, and in fact we're going to conclude with this um, approach as we think about uh, God as the creator. Um, We're thinking about the power of God. As we think about the power of God, uh, we're going to uh, spend some time in this account in Genesis 1. We're going to do a little bit of a deep dive into the grammar and the vocabulary of the Hebrew text. Buckle your seatbelts, put on your crash helmets, grab your cup of coffee, put your peppermints in your mouth, whatever you need to do. Uh, We'll come out the other end, and this will make sense to you. We're going to do a little bit of a deep dive together. And some of the things that we're going to say about Genesis chapter 1 may sound uh, different and even novel to you. Uh, And I want to assure you that my effort today is not to be different and novel, but rather it is to recover an approach to Genesis 1 that has been called the classical approach to Genesis 1. This is an approach to Genesis 1 uh, that would have been important and um, uh, registered its effect before sort of the scientific um, conversation uh, began to articulate the terms of the conversation. So we're recovering the classic approach to Genesis 1 uh, as we do this work. Uh, Moses, uh, in chapter 1, uses an incredible economy of words uh, in this poetic narrative, an incredible economy of words. So Moses, who writes these words, is using just the right word in just the right way, in just the right sentences, to tell us exactly what he wants us to see. And so right from the very start, he gives us this massive dose of theology, and it's all packed into that very first sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, sometimes we see that first sentence, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we think, oh, I get it. That's like the title for what's going to come next. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's the title statement. And then everything that comes after that is going to describe the details of how God created the heavens and the earth uh, and all the rest. And what I want to uh, suggest is that the text actually does something different from that. Uh, Let's look at this first sentence, phrase by phrase. The term, in the beginning is a phrase that actually has a fairly specific and well-established meaning. It's a very specific and well-established meaning. So, for example, the word is used to describe the beginning part of the reign of kings in the Old Testament. Sometimes an author will say, in the beginning of the reign, 
And when an author talks about the beginning of a king's reign, they are not just talking about the first moment of the first day. Uh, They're talking about the beginning period of that king's reign. A beginning period of that king's rule. Uh, And that sometimes describes a period of months, but there are also times and places where that can describe a period of years. So in other words, in the beginning of a king's reign is a uh, uh, unspecified length of time that occurs before something else. If I said to you, uh, in the beginning of my time as pastor here, I had a photo directory that I used to help me learn your names. Uh, Everybody would recognize that when I said, in the beginning uh, of my time as pastor here, I wasn't just talking about the idea that I used a photo directory to learn your names uh, for the first hour of my very first day on the job, and then put it away and never consulted it again. Uh, You would all understand that I was referring to a beginning period of time, of some unspecified length and duration. I didn't tell you if that beginning time covered a week or a month or several months. Uh, What you all understand is that I'm not simply describing a single moment in time. The point is, the phrase, in the beginning, means something like an extended but unspecified amount of time at the beginning of something else. Never a single moment. There's a different Hebrew word altogether that describes a single moment in time. This word describes a beginning period of time. And in the beginning period of time, God did what? It says that God created. Another very specific term, bara, in in the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament, only God ever creates. This is a verb that is only ever associated with God. Only God creates, never human beings. Human beings can make things, not create things. Only God creates. And what is it specifically that God creates? In this beginning period of time, God creates, as only God can do, the heavens and the earth. The phrase heavens and earth is another very specific Hebrew construction. It's called a merism. A merism. It's a literary device that uh, is meant to convey that something is more than just the sum of its parts. Uh, So in Hebrew, when David says that God knows his lying down and his rising up, what is David trying to convey about what God knows? Is David just talking about the idea that God knows when he goes to bed and God knows when he gets up in the morning? We all recognize that that wouldn't be that special. God knows my lying down and my rising up is a merism that is more than the sum of the parts. God knows those two things, but God also knows everything else in between. Right? God knows the totality of what I did with my day. In other words, there's nothing about me that God doesn't know. God knows my rising up and my lying down is a merism that includes everything about me. It's a way of expressing totality. 
when Jesus says that he is the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus is not simply saying that he stands only at the beginning and at the end, but rather Jesus is saying that he is present throughout the entirety. He is uh, always present, everywhere and at all times. He holds all time and all things in his hands. It's a merism. Heavens and earth is a merism. Heavens is conceived of as the highest point in creation, and the earth is conceived of as the lowest point in creation. What Moses is saying is that God created from the top to the bottom. In this beginning period of time, God called out of nothing everything that exists from the top to the bottom, all that there is. And that's exactly what Paul confirms in Colossians 1.16, another uh, creation story that exists in the Bible. Paul says, all things in the heavens and on the earth were created by him. And when Paul uses the term created, he's referring back to Genesis 1.1, using that term of creation that only God ever does. When God created the heavens and the earth, he then goes on to say, how expansive that creation really is. He says, all things, visible and invisible, all things were created through him and for him. Over and over and over again, Paul just keeps hitting that phrase, all things, all things, all things. So let me put this first sentence together for us. During an unspecified length of beginning time, we don't know how long, God created the universe and everything in it. Uh, that unspecified beginning time could cover millions of years. It doesn't say. It could cover billions of years. It isn't specified. It isn't limited. Uh, during that beginning period of time, dinosaurs could come and go. Continents could drift around. Canyons could be carved out. Galaxies were birthed. Everything from top to bottom, from the skies to the earth, everything that exists was created in that beginning time. And all of that creation happens in the first sentence of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then, Moses doesn't use the word create again until he gets to the very end of the chapter that we read today. God doesn't, according to Moses, create something each day. God creates everything that there is in verse 1, and there isn't another act of creation again until the very end of the story. God doesn't create everything on, uh, doesn't create something new on each day because everything was already created in verse 1 of chapter 1. And so here we're, we're beginning to see something about God's power. As we said, humans can make things, but only God creates out of nothing. Ever had a day that you woke up and you felt a little bit under the weather? a little sick, a little tired, a little worn out, 
And maybe you got up and somebody said, hey, how are you doing today? And you would say, eh, I don't have a lot of energy today. I'm feeling a little weak. I'm a little worn out. I don't have a lot of power, right? And then maybe a few days uh, down the line, you have gotten some good sleep. Your body is recovering. You're well-rested. You're stronger. Somebody says, how are you doing today? And you say, well, I feel stronger today. I feel like I have more energy. I have my energy back. And then maybe down the line, you decide that you're going to continue that trajectory and you go to the gym and you start working out and you're exercising and eating and doing all the right healthy things. And somebody says, how are you doing today? You say, I feel terrific. I I feel like I've got more energy and more stamina and more power than I've ever had before. So if you were to take that trajectory and continue it for infinity, if you were to take that trajectory and continue it for infinity, that every single day, you had more energy, more stamina, more power than you did the day before. Your power line would never intersect God's power. Because God's power is not just a question of being a magnitude different than ours. God's power is entirely different. We have the power to make Only God has the power to create out of nothing. God creates a universe. He creates all universes out of nothing. God isn't just arranging things on an earth that already exists in a sort of pre-creative form. Uh, from pre-existing materials that just simply need to be fashioned in a way. God creates out of nothing. Uh, Think about it. Uh, Stop for just a minute. If Genesis 1-1 is the title or a description of everything that is about to come, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and here's how he did it, then verse 2 The earth was empty, a formless mass cloaked in darkness. Already at the beginning of creation, the earth exists. Do you see that? If if verse 1 is the title and verse 2 is the beginning of the story, at the beginning of the story, the earth is already there. God is already hovering over the face of the earth. It's just formless and dark. Where did that earth come from? Where, Where did the earth appear from? Who made the earth, if anybody? And the answer is that the first verse of Genesis 1 isn't the title. It's a statement of God's creative power. That out of nothing, where there was no earth, where there was no mass, where there were no raw materials, God created out of nothing at all. In chapter 2, he goes to work. In verse 2, excuse me. The point is that God exists before creation exists, completely apart from creation. Before that beginning time of creation, God already was. God creates out of nothing. But there's more to God's power than just that. After the beginning time, when God creates the universe and everything in it, then the text says that this earth, was formless and empty. 
the Hebrew word there is a really cool word. It's tohu vabohu. Everybody say tohu vabohu. See, it's that's a great word, right? It's the tohu vabohu, right? You could kind of put it to music. It'll dance. It's really good. You know where else tohu vabohu shows up? Tohu vabohu shows up uh, in another story. It's a really important story in the Bible. Tohu vabohu shows up in the wilderness story. That's the word. It's the same word that Moses, who wrote our creation story, writes that story. It's the same word to describe the wilderness that God brings the Hebrews out of into the promised land. Um, the wilderness, the tohu vabohu in the Bible, is any place that isn't fit for human dwelling. It's a place of hostility and terror and death. So Moses himself uses this word again uh, just before his death. Uh, in Deuteronomy 32, we call that chapter the Song of Moses, and Moses is sort of uh, recounting all of the great acts of God. And he says in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 32, Moses talking about God, talking about Israel. This is Deuteronomy 32.10. He found him, God found Israel, he found him in a desert land, in a howling desert wasteland. God encircled him. God cared for him. He protected him as his most precious possession. Moses' understanding is that God finds Israel. God finds his most prized possession in this howling desert wasteland, in this tohu vabohu. And what I want to say is that in both of these places, Moses is telling us the same story. Moses is telling us the story that Moses was born to tell. He's always telling the story. It's the story of the movement of God's people from the wastelands to the promised land, from the desert into paradise. That's Moses' story. And it shows up in Deuteronomy 32. It shows up in the story of Exodus. And it shows up in Genesis chapter 1. In Deuteronomy, when Moses is singing his song, he's about to die. And the people of Israel are about to go into the promised land for the very first time. In Genesis, the story is unfolding. And we are standing in verse 2 in the tohu vabohu, in the wilderness, and we're about to go from the desert wasteland of verse 2 into the story of God preparing the promised land for his people in the rest of the chapter. The rest of Genesis 1 is the story of God not creating now, but specifically preparing the promised land. You know the difference between creating and making? Um, if How many of you made your bed this morning before you came to church? Come on, just be honest. How many of you made your bed this morning? Some, somebody, I don't know, somebody made it, right? If I said, did you make your bed today? And you say, yes, I made my bed today. What do I understand you to be saying? Does that mean that you created a bed this morning? That you sawed lumber and nailed things together and stitched a mattress and made a quilt and, and you know, filled some pill? It doesn't mean that you created a bed. To make your bed means that you have arranged it, you have prepared it, you have situated it in some fashion. That's the kind of language that the rest of Genesis 1 uses to describe what God is up to here. God is arranging and preparing and situating this creation that already exists now 
so that it becomes not an uninhabitable wasteland, a desert land, a tohu vabohu, but so that it is suitable for the dwelling of his people that he'll create at the end of the chapter. This is exactly uh, how the Bible itself understood what's happening here. Uh, In Jeremiah 27, Genesis 1 is in view when God says that he made the land, humankind, and the animals upon the land with my great, powerful, outstretched hand. And then he says, and I will give it to whomever I please. The verb that uh, Jeremiah uses uh, is to make or prepare, not create out of nothing. And the land that God has in mind is the promised land. That's the land that God is about to give over to the Babylonians. He isn't talking about the whole universe about to be handed over to the Babylonians. He's talking about the land that he prepared in Genesis 1, about to be handed over. So God prepares through chapter 1, dry land. He gathers clouds. He establishes that the planets will mark time and seasons. God plants fruit trees. And then in verse 21, we see another creative act of God as he fills the lakes and the streams with fish and the skies with birds and the fields with livestock and prey. And then he creates once again, and he welcomes human beings into their new home a home that was prepared for them, a home that was carved out of the wilderness, out of the wasteland, specifically for them. And so Isaiah reflects on this, and he writes in Isaiah 45, For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and who made it. He himself established it. He did not create it as emptiness, but formed it, for inhabiting. And so God's power is not only a power that is creative, not only does he create a universe and everything that is in the universe out of nothing, but God's power is also preparatory. God also prepares through his power. God's power prepares all that he has made to accomplish his purpose. There's not a wasted breath Uh, There's not a misplaced word. There's not an overlooked atom that God has not brought precisely to bear on his intended purpose and design. And then there's one final phrase in these first two verses. After telling us that in this beginning period of time, God created everything in the universe from top to bottom, and that the universe was still a desert wasteland unsuitable for human habitation, a tohu vabohu. Moses, who always has his eyes on the promised land, writes this. He says, And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of this wasteland. The Spirit of God was already moving over the surface of this wasteland. Where do we meet this God of immense power? Where do we meet God's power? It isn't, first of all, in the promised land where all of God's promises are already fulfilled. It's, first of all, in the wasteland. That's where God's Spirit is present. It's in the wilderness. It's what theologians sometimes call the via negativa, uh, the way of brokenness, the way of emptiness. 
See, what Moses knows and what we know, what we constantly discover and rediscover, is that the Spirit of God is present in the wilderness. The God of all power is present in places of brokenness, weakness, despair, fear, the places we find ourselves that are not fit for human habitation. Theologian Belden Lane writes these words about his time in the Tohu Vabohu, his journey through the Via Negativa, this place of brokenness. Such was the hazardous desert terrain into which I was led by this unintelligible thing the doctors referred to as metastatic breast cancer. My mother and I had no way of understanding it. We feared the loss of memory, the intense pain that is part of a proliferating bone cancer, the long hours spent in the waiting room of radiation oncology, the dread and longing for the morphine shunt that mercifully but terrifyingly dulls the mind, the wish simply to know when to expect the end. Not that I was ready in any way to deal with my mother's dying. It reminded me too much of my father's death and even my own. I wasn't ready for any of this, least of all for the truth that grace would be found, not apart from, but wholly within the experience. The Spirit of God is hovering over the wilderness. He is present in the darkness with all of his creative might, calling forth out of nothing what doesn't exist into existence and preparing each and every moment according to his plan and purpose. It's the grace that we find in the wilderness that tenderly brings us ultimately into the promised land. It's in that via negativa, the way of brokenness and despair, that we so often find God's expression of endless and powerful recreation. What is God like? Who is God? God's power is unlike any human power, even if human power could be extended for all eternity. God creates out of nothing. God prepares everything, always, for his purpose. And God's power is discovered, not first of all in the promised land where all promises are kept and fulfilled, but first of all in the wasteland of our brokenness. The creative power of God is expressed as grace. We most need it. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, thank you for being a God of all power. Your might, your strength, the force of who you are is beyond anything that we can imagine. It defies comprehension.
our words really do fail. And yet we are the ongoing beneficiaries of that creative work, of that creative power. You called a universe into being out of absolutely nothing. You formed this world according to your purpose and your plan for your people. And you bring us, meeting us in the wilderness, in the places of fear and brokenness, ultimately and always into your promised land. Lord, we thank you for this. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.